Alright legends, welcome to Skimmy Up Body and in this episode we're getting into some more of Star Trek Picard Season 2. This is uh, episode 5 I believe, uh, a little episode called, um, yeah, episode 5 of Season 2 uh, entitled Fly Me to the Moon. Great little episode this one, I was, you know there's quite a bit happens in this episode. Uh, at the beginning we we see uh, a girl piloting a, a rocket into orbit. Uh, alarm starts sounding and Mission Control in Houston warns that there's an impending impact with a Russian satellite. And as the satellite impacts, the alarm stops. The controller says, boom, you're dead. It is a simulation for a mission that this young girl is going on soon. And we discover that this is Rene Picard. This is an ancestor of uh, good old Picard himself. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a tasty little episode. Now, I do have to say, in this season... I was hoping for a lot more of Q in it. There's really not enough Q in this series for my liking. But uh, it is what it is. And uh, enjoyable. Star Trek, no matter what you're getting, it's, it's just it's good to get some new Star Trek. Um, this one here, this series, I feel is definitely stronger than the first series. Picard um, but you know it's one of these things I've said it before and I'll say it again uh, you're either going to love new Star Trek or absolutely hate it I don't think there's any middle ground with it uh, it's definitely not in the same vein as the classic shows but you know and saying that we got Strange New Worlds which was a nice little you know, paid homage to that sort of style of the original series and whatnot. So, you know, it's uh, it's diverse. You know what I mean? That's it's one of these things that, you know, if you don't like the show, that's okay. Uh, but don't ruin it for other people. Like, I'm not going to be that guy that's going to put these shows down just because, oh, this isn't as good as the original stuff. But it is, it does have its moments. And uh, yes, I'm enjoying them all. Not as much, you know, as far as uh, Picard and Discovery at this point. Um, I have yet to get into season four of Discovery. But uh, it is what it is. I enjoy the old shows. I can't pass them up on TV. But uh, I am kind of struggling with uh, new Star Trek at the moment but beyond uh, Strange New Worlds absolutely adore that show but that was a flipping two and a half minute tangent that had absolutely no bearing on the review that we're actually supposed to be talking about so we'll get back into it and we'll see what's happening um, John Luke Picard the man himself he is Taken to an apartment by the mysterious Watcher. We've seen them meeting up at the end of the last episode. Um, he realises uh, it's not actually Laris. Uh, it's, it's the same actress that's playing this character. Or the same actor. You know, it's, it's one of these things, you know, actor. Actress is just like, you know, not even going to fall into that trap. The person that's playing this character within the episode is the same person that was playing the character of Lars at the beginning of the season. And now this is a new character that's been played by a person that's a person that's playing the character. Uh, for goodness sake, um, shut up Rodney and let's just get into this. <laughs> um, she identifies herself as Talon. Picard explains that he has... Came from the future, uh, Talon immediately expresses her dislike for time travellers. Uh, when he identifies himself as Jean-Luc Picard, uh, her attention, you know, pops up a wee bit. And she explains, like, 
Like all others in her profession, she has uh, a singular purpose to protect one individual, a single string on the grand tapestry uh, to which she's not privy. Uh, she puts it, uh, Picard explains that there was a divide, there's a divergence coming up, uh, something that altered the future that he came from, and that either Talon or the person she's protecting are important to the future. Talon reveals that the person that she's protecting uh, is Remy, who is Picard's ancestor. Um, back in the La Serena, uh, it's, of course, it's cr- Picard crash landed the ship in the Shadow Picard, uh, the Borg Queen. She regains consciousness. She's in there. She's alone. Uh, but she's she's not lonely, let's just say. she. Uh, uh, there's voices when she says it, you know, uh, alone but not lonely. Silence is loud. Voices carried everywhere in invisible strings. What she do? What she's doing in this episode is she's able to hear the transmissions of, uh, you know, cellular phone towers, um, communications of the twenty first century. So you know she's picking all this up and she's driving it through her head as like a replacement for the millions of voices of the collective that she doesn't have in this time zone. And she's taking pleasure from it. Her eyes open and she asks computer to the computer. For some reason, I think I said it properly the first time, but computer sounded wrong, so I'll say it again. She, computer, she... <laughs> I should really record these podcasts more whenever I'm, like, you know, no sleep, haven't been had. Because I get into such a weird and wacky frame of mind whenever I just have not slept properly but uh yes I'm gonna try my hardest to get through this without screwing this up um yeah um where are we once again we have lost place in her notes um she gets computer to intercept the local tower frequencies the computer She's trying to get the computer to do that there, but it's not recognising her voice. Uh, so the Queen mimics others with the same request. First she uses Gerardi's voice, then she tries Picard's voice, and then finally Rios, of course, the, the ship as his. And that's gonna, you know, he's gonna have the, as far as voice recognition goes, that's gonna accept that over everybody else's. Um, the computer confirms Rios's voice access and giving the Queen full access to the computer. Uh, she's able to make a call to the French National Police. Speaking in French, uh, she tells him that there's a woman under attack near the Picard vineyard. And yeah, the policeman on the line tells her to stay put. Uh, an officer is on his way. The Queen smiles to herself. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the bus that's carrying the actual Rios to the Sanctuary District on the U.S.-Mexico border is detected by Rafi's tricorder. Uh, I'm going to up the road from their location. She plans to have Gerardi use Las Serena's transporter to lock on and beam him out, but seven of nine points out an issue. If he's beamed out in the presence of our people, it could affect the timeline. Uh, Rafi clearly does not have patience for time travel rules and points out that they're they were about to lose Rios forever if they don't get him out of the bus now but Seven tries to reassure her that they would get him out alive but in such a way they would not further alter time Uh, she then demands that Rafi hand over the tricorder saying that she's been too careless uh, Rafi counters with the seven of nine was being too goddamn careful. So, a uh, bit of a lover's quarrel between these two throughout this series. Um, seven asks her again, 
Rafi reluctantly handed it over, saying uh, he was 400 metres out. Seven can see Rafi's upset, uh, not only about Elnor, but her, but also about her son Gabe, saying that she needed a target somewhere to set her feet on fight. And uh, Rafi counters at seven only wants to run away, and seven agrees as she activates the electromagnetic pulse that disables the bus. Uh, because something that's not moving is vulnerable, Seven concludes. So that, to me, reading this back, in a weird way in my mind, it, it didn't make much sense. That last big paragraph of stuff I just went through there, I think my England isn't great whatsoever. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm the worst podcaster on the face of the planet. Um... Aboard the bus, Rios realises what's going on. This is the the crew coming for him. As the ICE officers uh, order the detainees not to move, Rios looks to one of the other guys, Pedro, and tells him in Spanish to get ready to act before saying the same to the others. The officer tells him to shut up as he works to resolve the whatever issues going on here with the bus. Uh, Pedro tells Rios not to do anything stupid but Rios replies that his friends have already got that covered so uh, the ICE officer now opens the security gate to the detainee area within this prison bus and he's just pissed at Rio and not shut his face uh, Rio Rios Rio her name is Rio and she dances. Um, <laughs> I apologise, guys. I am not taking this serious whatsoever tonight. Um, Rios attacks the ICE officer. The, the officer comes in and he's going to beat Rios for n- not staying quiet. But Rios fights him, attacks him. The driver pulls his gun but Rafi manages to disable him with a stun beam. Um, just as Rios and Pedro knock out the ICE officer, uh, Seven grabs a pocket knife from the unconscious driver and begins cutting the restraints on the, the detainees. So uh, upon seeing Seven and Rafi, Rios remarks that the 21st century has so far been a very bumpy century, but he was getting the hang of it. Uh, Seven knows someone will start missing the bus at some point which meant that they had to get out fast Rafi suddenly sees one of the the detainees running out and she believes it's Elnor you know for a split second it actually is Elnor but this is like for from her perspective we're seeing and we do see Elnor for a split second but whenever she calls on this guy and he turns around it's it's not Eleanor, it's just somebody with long hair, sort of similar, bald and whatnot, but it's it's not the kid. Um the man asks if she was alright. She replies that she is telling him to go with the others. Seven of nine steps off the bus asking what what came next, uh Rafi. So much shaken agrees with Seven's earlier idea to keep moving. Rios congratulates Pedro on the help that he gave him in the bus and wishes him well as he leaves with Seven and Rafi. Uh, back at the apartment with Talon, uh, Picard asks about her job. Talon explains that she was chosen to be a supervisor. Uh, Picard then recalls from his history that James T. Kirk once encountered a supervisor named Gary Seven. Now we haven't got as far as that episode in the reviews of the original series, but I can recall it. And you know, it's one of the things that's not so much annoying me about new Star Trek, but it's very at this point, it's very it's very much Leaning on to the 
Easter eggs and uh, little bits of fan service. And I think I can appreciate that. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate a little bit of fan service here and there. But to the extent that these shows are doing it at this point, it's, you know, I'm enjoying it, but it's it's kind of annoying as well. It's just like, you know, you, you spent all this money to create a new series, to take the, the story forward, you know, give us an Easter egg once in a while, a little bit of fan service every once in a while, but you don't have to beat us over the head with this sort of stuff. But, uh... But anyway, you know what, it does make sense that they bring up Gary Seven and uh, James T. Kirk's Enterprise in this here. But, uh, just, ooh, not so much, please, guys. Um, Gary Seven, he had a similar job to protect the tapestry of history. Uh, even in Talon's case, a single Fred. He then asks her about Rene. Uh, Talon explains that her job involves watching but never been seen unless she has never actually met Rene but knows she grew up in the south of France taught herself how to sail by the age of 10 by 11 she had moved on to chess fluid dynamics Cantonese she then went to university at the age of 16 then spent a couple of years as a test pilot uh she says those years were nail biters uh, before finally being recruited by NASA. Picard thinks she sounds remarkable. Talon agrees that she is, but she also has her struggles, particularly with feelings of melancholy, anxiety, and depression. It's nice to see a character within the show dealing with this sort of stuff. It's. it's it's not new to Star Trek, but and this the way that it's done with this character and this handful of episodes that she's in, it's very, very well handled. Um Talon says it's a shame for a mind that can burn so brightly. Uh Picard knows that depression in humans can be debilitating and thinks she is lucky to be I uh, think she is lucky to survive but Talon thinks there's a problem she's not exactly surviving she explains that the Europa mission this is the mission that we've seen at the beginning of the episode the the uh, what do you call it <laughs> the, the test flight and the simulator was for this Europa mission uh, it's the first manned space flight to the Jovian Moon uh, it launches in three days a mission Picard knows was a pioneering, sp- pioneering space flight in his history however Talon expresses doubt that Rennie will even be on the flight at the same time Rennie meets with a therapist who tells her to be kinder to herself Rennie confesses that she has times where she wonders if she was truly ready or if she would fail when the time came and knowing that lives would depend on her well-being Talon brings up the the feed from the session that's happening explaining that it was a mandatory psychiatric evaluation for the mission Picard protests that it was a private matter you know, we shouldn't have done this sort of thing this is, this is private, this is her business we don't have a right to be looking at this here. But uh, this is what Talon's doing. She's keeping an eye on this girl all her life. So you know she's more than content to get in and check this here out. And thankfully she does and takes Picard onto it with her. And uh, to let him see what's happening. Um, uh, as they watch, Rennie admits to feeling like nothing matters. Feeling numb at times. And it scared her how she was feeling. She didn't know if it was a gut instinct or just plain fear. And the therapist tells her that fear need not be an enemy but a friend. And that perhaps it was telling her that she was not ready. 
Picard thinks the therapist is trying to talk her out of it, but at the same time, and also as a viewer, catch it as well, at exactly the same moment, uh, this voice is familiar. Uh, Picard asks if he can see the, who the therapist is. We get a different angle on him, and Picard's fury kicks out, uh, he recognises the, the therapist as Q, who, is, who he realises is trying to use Rene to change the future, and that's all just in Act 1 of the episode, now I've arsed about here for 20 odd minutes, tripping over my own words and whatnot. so we're going to blast forward with the rest of this review, we catch up with Dr Adam's song in this episode as well. Uh, he's speaking before a board of doctors explaining his vision of understanding the human genome, a future free of disease and genetic defects. Uh, this is all to give data something to do in this series, saying as data's dead. And uh, we need all these characters back in for this series. So we get Dr. Sung, or one of his ancestors, in here. And, uh, yes, he asks this board of doctors to imagine that he is a god looking down humanity and seeing them at a crossroads. Do they evolve to enlightenment or divert in the darkness? He asks him to picture a world free of genetic defects. If he had the power to nudge humanity in the right direction, he argues, wouldn't it be... His responsibility, he asks. If they could find the key to unlocking our perfection, how far would they be willing to go? But the chair of the panel, Dr. Werner, points out that he had been part of a private military organisation, spearhead operations, testing genetic experiments on soldiers. Some points out that they were ex-soldiers, but... Nevertheless, Werner continues that his experiments were both illegal and unregulated. Soon tries to soon still tries to argue that it was for the greater good, explaining that his daughter was afflicted with a genetic defect that left her confined to a single room. The smallest smallest speck of dust would ruin her respiratory system. And the radiation, the ultraviolet radiation from sunlight would poison her blood. Uh, Werner tells him that breaking the Shenzhen Convention, I've probably written that name down. Uh, this convention, you know, you shouldn't be arsing about with genetics and, you know, what's going to take you down the road of friggin' Khan and shit to get there. You're not allowed to arse about with this stuff. She sees, like, you know, Gonna shut him down. Um, uh, they're left with no choice but to revoke his license and his voting and to ban him from continuing any research and the genetics. When he returns home, he enters the sterile lab area. He's greeted by his daughter, Cor, who asks how it went and seems that it went, sees that it went badly by the look on his face, and she asks. If he did the humanity at the crossroads speech, and he has much that he did, and he tells her that if there was a single pearl of wisdom that he wanted to impart to her from his life experience and work, it was that people are idiots. Uh, he reassures her that someday soon she would uh, meet some morons up close, and she asks how soon, and soon replies that. He was almost there. But he's desperate at this point. He doesn't know how he's going to do what he needs to do to save his daughter's life at this point. Um, yeah, so uh, as she holds out her arm for her father to take a blood sample. Sample? There's a new word for you. No, it's actually a real word. But uh, it's a blood sample, not a blood sample. So, uh, the only simple thing here to me. <laughs> um, yes, so, as he's taking the blood sample, she says she wants to learn how to swim when she finally goes outside. 
To see nothing but sunlight reflected from the pool to breathe the ocean air. Soon promises he will do anything to make that happen. However, upon analysing the blood sample, the computer indicates a critical failure. Uh, that the genetic sequence he was working on had a 99.83% certainty of killing the subject. He's visibly upset by this result as he looks out to where she's sleeping on the couch. But suddenly his computer screen begins to show up the words, I can help. Confused, soon looks as research data is rapidly shown on the screen, there's this download coming in and whatnot, and it's, it's, uh, turns out to be Q reaching out and pulling this guy in. But, uh, it tells him to check his 3D printer, and the printer has created a metal plate with a stylized letter Q and a phone number. Uh, back at the Shadow Picard, the French National Police, uh, landed the empty house, Turn up, comes on with a flashlight, using his radio to contact the dispatcher, reporting that the house was abandoned. But he would continue to investigate. Uh, he comments on his hate for the countryside as he's just about to spark up a cigarette. And he looks outside to see something shimmering in the distance, which it is the, the cloaking device, the cloaking device of the La Serena. Uh, Gerardi is asleep on the couch in the next room he doesn't see her and goes out the police officer goes out and shines his flashlight on the ship seeing that there is indeed something there he goes inside gun drawn he's like you know this can't be real Uh, looking around this ship from the, the 25th century and he hears a woman's voice calling for help Hold on a little second, my phone just turned on for some reason. Um, yeah, he hears this woman's voice calling for help. Uh, he finally traces down the source where this voice is coming from, and it's the Borg Queen suspended above the deck. And she's like, my hero, sarcastically. Uh, this police officer, he like doesn't know what to think. You know, he's never seen an alien life form before, and the first thing he sees is... The, the Borg Queen with the, you know, half her body missing. So uh, he falls backwards on the deck, uh, the deck and the Queen uh, senses that he suffers from a nicotine addiction and she's like, I can help with that. And at which point a tentacle raises from over her shoulder and you know, she's going to take this guy and assimilate his ass. So uh, yeah, as I say, there's a hell of a lot of stuff happening in this episode. Uh, back in Los Angeles, we meet up with Song again as he meets Q in a small diner, remarking on the the neat little trick of Q hacking into his network as well as providing a specific data to the problem he was trying to solve. And he asks Q if he knows how many crackpots he has to deal with, uh, ringing from basement dwelling Nazis to rich heiresses trying to clone their effing cats as he says there's something that pops up in this episode again is the the F word that pops up and and I don't know I just like I'm a Kevin Smith fan I've said this before in reviews for uh, I believe Discovery season one some of the reviews I was doing that I mentioned the fact of swearing on a Star Trek show just feels really badly out of place. Uh, I still can't get my head around it. But I'm a huge Kevin Smith fan. Like, like you know, if you know Clerks and Chasing Amy and Mallrats and all that sort of thing. You know, there's no shortage of swear words in those movies. And I do not get offended by it. On the slightest, I don't get offended by it either in Star Trek. But it just feels very out of place for me. And a Star Trek show, um, and it's it's nothing new. We've heard it before in some of the movies. You know, like uh, I'm pretty sure Star Trek Three. Uh, I think uh, 
you know, the search for Spock. I'm pretty sure Captain Kirk swore whenever the Klingons killed his son. But for the longest time on television, whenever that movie was aired, that was cut out. So they, I had seen that so many times as a kid. You recorded off TV or something, or on TV that would be cut out, and it's just something a word that I didn't even know was in the movie until a little bit later in life. But uh, as I say, it's not something that offends me; it just feels badly out of place. So, uh, yeah, Sung is making clear that he did not do any of these things, warning Q not to waste his time. Uh, Q replies. He wouldn't think of it, uh, thinking on how he's taken time for granted of late, and now she's threatening to abandon him. Abandon him. So, uh, we did see that at the end of the last episode where Q seems to be losing his power. So he needs Sung for something, but even though he's losing his little bag of magic tricks, you know, like he can't click his fingers and make shit happen at this stage. But he does have the knowledge that he can use to manipulate Dr. Sung into helping him. So, uh, yeah, Sung sort of dismisses this as more crackpot, crackpot talk. He's getting ready to leave and Q stops him short, saying that in 17 seconds he would sit down because he had... He knows it's going to happen because this guy, you know, you've just driven an hour to meet a total stranger, not for mystery or curiosity, but because he was a father who was desperate. Exactly 17 seconds in, Sung sits down, saying that if Q knew so much about him, he would know Sung would kill him if he fought him a threat. Q agrees and says he likes that about him. Um, Sung then asks who he is Q's reply is somewhat dramatic I am the evolution of stardust I am the gentle flutter of a butterfly I am death, destroyer of worlds He then cheerfully adds that he was a fan of Sung's work And a visionary who knows how important That this guy is going to be to Earth's future Sung demands to know what he wants, but Q replies that this was about what Sung wanted. What he wanted would come later. Uh, she doesn't have much time, does she? Q asks her, or asks Dr. Sung, commenting on the irony of a geneticist whose daughter had an incurable genetic disease. Sung argues that nothing is incurable. But Q points out that he neither has the fountain nor the time to prove that theory. It, Q then pulls a small vial of blue liquid from his coat, rolling it across the table over to Dr. Sung. He tells the doctor to analyse it, and if he likes what he sees, to give Q a call once more. Then perhaps Q will tell him what Q wants in return for this. Back at her apartment, Talon asks Picard why Q didn't just snap his fingers and make the Europa mission ship just disappear, or even Rennier himself, if he was as powerful as Picard City is. Picard admits that he doesn't know, but if Q is trying to change the timeline by manipulating Rennie, he would rob her of the destiny Talon was sworn to protect. So, you know, Picard's using the, the old grey matter in this moment. Uh, Talon would be the sort of person up to this point where she is only a watcher. She's not going to get involved in the situation. But Picard is skilled enough in negotiations that he just he knows what buttons to press with her. So uh, Talon's definitely going to jump on board and help him out. Um, Talon knows she will go into pre-launch quarantine the next day. And there would be no chance of getting her, of her backing out at this stage. If they can get her into this uh, pre-launch quarantine, then uh, the mission's pretty much sorted. She'll be on the ship, ready to go. Uh, 
which to Picard meant they would have to find a way to keep her from backing out for the next 15 hours. Picard half-jokingly asks if Talon has any sedatives, but she replies that Rennie has to attend a gala that night. Uh, it's a big party before the astronauts go into quarantine. And it's uh, something that she has to go to. It's not, it's not optional. It's like, you know, if you're going to be in this mission, you have to be at this here. You have to show your face at this gala. Uh, Picard's plan is to attend the gala, monitor any state of mind, and prevent any interference, suggesting contacting his crew. Uh, Talon notes that he seems to be under the assumption that she's going to take orders from him. But Picard argues that she has protected Rennie for 24 years and that they stood a better chance working together. As I say, master negotiator, he's going to have this woman at his side. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, back at the last Serena, the Queen begins calling out to Gerardi, saying that she has a surprise for her. Gerardi awakens on the mansion. Here's the Queen shouting uh, before looking... Up at a double-barreled shotgun hanging on the mantelpiece of the house. She arms herself with the weapon. Uh, she returns to the ship finding the queen with one of her appendages wrapped around the the policeman's neck, the French policeman's neck. She claims to be helping Gerardi, who calls bullshit on her. Uh, the queen amends that she was helping the both of them. She could take over the policeman's body, but it was Gerardi that she really wanted. Of course, earlier in the series, never the two of them sort of like matched minds, uh, Gerardi was able to venture into the Queen's mind, as the way, you know, almost like the Vulcan mind meld sort of a setup when it was a Borg and a human. But Gerardi is that much of a brainiac she was able to get into the, the queen's mind as well so the queen is very much impressed with Gerardi at this point and she wants Gerardi's body essentially um, yeah she mocks Gerardi for as being alone in every timeline the way that the queen can see through time and whatnot, she's using this against Gerardi it's like no matter what happens here no matter if future changes or not whatever timeline happens if this timeline continues you're going to be on your own if the original timeline comes back you're going to be on your own in fact every reality you're on your own more or less um, every yeah uh, her fate was to be forever invisible the queen offers to change that imagine being loved completely every thought and every whisper cherished shared with their minds joined as one they could be more the queen adds that she was the she's the only one in the entire universe who has truly seen Gerardi um, but Gerardi raises a shotgun saying it had to end uh, the queen the board queen is kind of like you know yeah, screw you sort of thing, saying that she was getting out, whether in Gerardi's body or this policeman's body. Gerardi pulls the trigger, and uh, we cut that scene. Um, we go back once again to Dr. Sung. As I say now, we're 38 minutes into this episode, and there's a shitload of stuff happens in this episode. A mountain of stuff squeezed in here. Uh, back in the lab, Sung has analysed the the vial that Q gave him and he's astonished to see that the substance substance I said substance there gosh the grammar Nazi's going to have a field day with me yeah he's astonished to see that this substance is stable with 100% effectiveness to treat Corey's uh, condition um, he wonders allowed how it was possible before looking out at her she's sitting reading a book on a monitor and uh, out in her deck shielded from ultraviolet light he hands her a syringe with the genetic stabilizer on it that Q gave him Corey asks him how he managed the breakthrough Song says it was a colleague 
um, since a colleague inspired him to try something new and that he had tested it on himself already so it's safe to use Corey assures her father she trusts him and gives herself the injection Sung then disables the the drone shields that are blocking the sun over the top of them and the unfiltered sunlight shines down on them both with no ill effects father and daughter burst into joyous laughter before Corey jumps into the pool um, she admits that she has almost got the hang of it you know swimming this is um, for someone that you know water and sunlight can affect them like a vampire you know like water and sunlight's going to burn the crap out of her skin she takes this woman like a friggin' duck in this episode. She's very flippin' good at it for someone that's never done it before. Uh, I'm jealous because I, at this point, I'm still not a good swimmer. Um, yeah. Uh, she asks if her mother was a good swimmer. Like a duck, as Sung's answer. Um, at her confusion, he amends that to Mermaid, uh, remarking that she was a, a decade or two behind the times due to her isolation and urges her to be patient with herself. Patience requires time, she replies, and Sung wonders if they could just not think for an afternoon. Something that sounded out of character for Dr. Sung. Uh, he admits he just wants to take the one this time. Uh, Corey asks about his colleague before she begins to feel immense pain kicks in. You know, she's just about to ask if this person that helped her father with this cure, but just at that, the cure starts to wear off. This is just, it's like a dealer trying to get someone on this queue as just giving a sample to Sung at this point, and it's just like the little taster to, you know, you know, you take a little bit here, this is free. But the next bit's going to cost you. That's where Q's going at this point. Um, yeah, she starts feeling immense pain. And uh, the blood vessels start to break in her face. Expire webs of blood. Um, Sung frantically brings up the drone shields back online. Um, where are we? Um... Back at the La Serena, Rios, Seven and Rafi being back onto the ship. They're horrified to see Gerardi covered in blood. She stamped the transporter console, but she reassures them that it's not her blood. But admits that she may have killed her only way home. Uh, behind her, the body of the Borg Queen hangs lifeless uh, from the roof. And the policeman is unconscious in the ship's sick bay. Gerardi has repaired most of his major organs, but his spleen is in a box nearby. Um, she tells him the Borg Queen was killing him, and she admits hating having to shoot the Queen, noting how easy had it had been. Uh, she had been just as human as they were. Uh, seven points out a few billion souls would disagree with Gerardi. Uh, Gerardi erased the policeman's memory of the incident, but they had to get him to his car. He's knocked out and whatnot, and they've wiped his memory. Should be all good. Uh, timeline safe and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, uh, Picard and Talon appear in uh, a rectangular puff of smoke. It's a little transporter device that these people use, which is a very similar effect to the original series. Um, the supervisor asking if the crew was trustworthy. Picard assures her that they were. Uh, just then they see the rest of the crew pulling what Talon thinks is a dead body out of the ship, but it's the, the, un, the unconscious policeman. But Picard... Nice little comedy moment where he's saying how good the crew is. We've been through this, that, and the other. I trust them in my life and whatnot. They can, they're the most trustworthy group of people you'll ever meet in your life. And then you look down to the lower decks of the ship and you see these people like trailing this guy out. <laughs> it's just a nice little subtle piece of humour. Picard is sure that this guy's not dead, thinking there was a reasonable explanation. Uh, back at the lab, 
of Dr. Soong. He's called Q to join him and asks if he has a real cure. Not something that wears off, calling himself the hostage, uh, if indeed that he does. Q answers that they were that they are all hostages to what they loved, and the only way to truly be free was to love nothing. He confirms that he has what Sung needs, and the doctor asks what Q needs. Q admits that he has encountered certain limitations of late, and so asks Sun to remove an obstacle from both of them, and uh, goes on to say, does the name Picard mean anything to you? Back at the Chateau Picard, Raffi asks Picard about Talon, noting her resemblance to Lars. Picard gives short, blunt answers. Talon then shows them the therapy session between Rennie and Q, needs to follow everybody in. Q asks what Q is playing at, and Picard admits that there was a real danger of Rennie removing herself from the Europa mission, and that they had seen the consequences if she does, uh, the future that they just came from. Uh, Rios wonders how this many times great aunt of Picard's is the one person preventing their future from becoming a xenophobic tyranny. Picard admits he doesn't understand exactly, as the history of the time period was pretty incomplete. The century leading up to first contact was rife chaos and that all that was known about Rene was that she discovered a microorganism on uh, Elo, uh, another moon of Jupiter, and she believed was sentient. She convinced the mission commander to bring it back to Earth. However, none of that would matter if Rene did not go on the mission. So it's just, she made a small difference at the right point in history, and this is what... Q is taking advantage of and they need to stop him from doing that. Um, uh, yes. Uh, they would have to go to the gala to watch over. Talon emphasises that this has to be uh, no contact with her. Their intervention must be on scene. Picard knows it. Seems like Q is playing with them. But he is both unpredictable and dangerous and Rennie would be out in the open. Talon points out another problem. The gala was maximum security, and they weren't invited. Each guest was issued with a radio frequency invite that corresponded to a database of their entire life history. Uh, Talon's technology could get one person in temporarily, but once inside, facial recognition would take over. Even if they transported into the middle of the dance floor, they would be instantly caught. Gerardi pipes up volunteers to hack the database, having taken um, some sort of antique coding in school. Talon thinks it cannot be done, as the database was physically separate from the network, but Gerardi recognises it as air gapping, which she calls primitive but effective. A couldn't hack until they were inside, so Gerardi would go in and put their identification into the database to allow the rest of them inside. Uh, Rios points out that they were sending uh, a robot, a robotist, that's a big word, as opposed to seven offenders, ranger, or Rafi, an ex-Starfleet intelligence operative. Picard is confident, though, that Gerardi has the skills to get them inside, and he has a plan so we get close to the end of the episode and now we get to the gala and the band is playing the song Fly Me To The Moon which is where the title of the episode comes from uh, Gerardi enters under the identity of Holly Vizzer uh, seeing a glitch on his computer screen the security officer asks for another form of ID Gerardi shows her California ID card uh, inside the party she gets through Gerardi spots Rene the young astronaut to be is watching footage of the Apollo 11 first manned mission to the moon why thicken 
to the disaster of her first simulation that we saw seen at the beginning of the episode, Gerardi is then spotted by the facial recognition computer telling Picard that she's jamming the signal. But the security people are like, you know, this girl's talking to herself, you know, go check her out, see what's going on. I think we've got a party crasher out there. Uh, they warn the guard on the floor that she's, again, talking to herself. So he goes over and uh, pretty much arrests her, more or less takes her on, where she's handcuffed to a chair in the surveillance room. And she reports that she was on the side and Picard acknowledges waiting for her signal. She then begins to think on her confrontation with the Borg Queen, uh, shooting her to save the policeman before feeling an agonizing pain through her body. Um, the Queen replies that it was her that she had let herself into the Gerardi's mind while the Gerardi was inside hers. The Queen again says that they could be more together, but Gerardi angrily replies that they were nothing together. The Queen points out that she was needed to get home and that Gerardi in particular needed her. The Queen reaches out. Now, this is a flashback to whenever she was shot by Gerardi, like she's dying there and they're having this conversation. The Queen reaches out with her hand and uh, plunges a simulation tubules into Gerardi's face. We cut back then to the surveillance room at the end of the episode and the camera pans across and the Queen suddenly appears next to Gerardi, arm around her shoulder, captured on purpose, she mocks. Clever little plan. Gerardi is silent and visibly uncomfortable as Picard calls her. So that is where we cut out at the end of the episode. Absolutely fantastic. And this um, this review was a heck of a lot longer than I was expecting it to be because I, again, I kind of settled down into it after the first 15 minutes. But that first 15 minutes of this episode was, gosh, could have went anywhere. And it did go anywhere. Because I'm overtired. It's my first day back at work and uh, I'm just shattered. But uh, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I've, I've got over my burnout. That's why I haven't been on this podcast for a bit. Uh, we're good to go at the start of December there. Then I just had a crazy uh, mental, emotional, physical wall. Had it hard and it just... Shut everything down for a month. Fuck myself right. We're coming into the mouth of Christmas here. I'm going to take it easy for a while. Get over this burnout and back into it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, this will be going three days a week, this podcast from here on. And I can't promise you that. Because once I do promise you that there, that's the time something truly messed up will happen and I'll not be able to get an episode up so I'm not going to promise it but it's a possibility so uh, until the next episode guys whatever you're doing I hope you're doing it safely I hope you're all fine and well and all that good stuff and I will talk to you on the next episode this has been a production of Coins Age Media thank you so much for listening